Welcome to Frontlines, a weekly podcast produced by Legion Magazine, Canada's leading military history publication. Join us for stories and commentary on Canada's rich military past and present. I'm Stephen J. Thorne, and today we look at the story of medic Macha Kujapoye, who took 10 years to diagnose her post-traumatic stress injury. As a member of five field ambulance in Afghanistan, medic Macha Kujapoye treated so many patients with such a variety of ills and injuries, she didn't know what more she could do or see to fill out her trauma book. Better known in English as a casualty book, the journal is a log of the cases a medic handles, like the life list birders keep of the birds they see, or the logbook a pilot maintains of the planes they fly and the hours spent airborne. Kuja Poirier's book covered the gamut. There were skin infections, dust-filled eyes, and twisted ankles, camel spider bites, head injuries, broken bones, and every degree of burns. She saw so many gunshot wounds that they became as interesting as the annual parade of La Grippe cases during flu season. Then there were the amputations and the deaths. Deployed to replace a medic killed in action, the first gunshot wound she saw was daunting. But by the time she left Afghanistan that first tour, the native of Kaplan, a tiny village on Quebec's Gaspé Peninsula, was demanding the most challenging cases. By the end, I was telling them, give me the worst one, she said. I liked it. I was totally desensitized. I had no emotion at all, like nothing. Sometimes the other medics were crying about someone who died or something that was not nice to see. I didn't understand why. She had joined the military in January 2001. She was at CFB Borden in Ontario, just finishing her first level training toward becoming a medic when 9-11 happened. While we were taking the course picture, someone came into the room and screamed, Stop! Stop! Come see the TV! We all moved to the canteen to see what was happening. Maybe two hours later, we all had to go to prepare our kits, just in case. We were on an eight-hour call-up. One person quit the next day. Kuja Poirier started recognizing how much she had changed in the spring of 2007 when she returned to life in Canada. It was a huge adjustment, coming down from the constant state of awareness that had become a way of life in a war zone. Nothing was fun, nothing was bad, she said. It was hard to have an emotion, a good one or a bad one. You have hypervigilance. It was hard because it's so intense over there. You feel like you belong in this other place and you just want to go back. Nothing at home is as fulfilling or intense, she said. You're working in the clinic and you're looking for the same kind of thrill, but forget it. Then there were the nightmares. She recalls one night in Afghanistan, sleeping outside beside her armored vehicle, as one does, and waking up to the sounds of explosions nearby. Usually, she would put her eyeglasses inside her boots next to her head, but this time, amid the chaos surrounding her, her boots were not in their usual place, and she couldn't see where. Everybody was still with their weapon in the truck, and me, I was still looking for my glasses. It was one of the first moments that I was scared. You just hear boom, 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 tat-a-tat-a-tat around you, and you can't see anything. I had a lot of nightmares about that. She had developed serious neck problems from her pack and night vision equipped helmet. 
She was training to serve as a gunner on the Bison Ambulance when she finally was forced to see a doctor and a physiotherapist. X-rays and an MRI revealed that she had a herniated disc and arthritis throughout her cervical region. It was so bad she could hardly walk. The doctor told her she had no future in the military. Kuja Poirier rejected the diagnosis and landed a Master Corporal's position in charge of the clinic in Kandahar. It was a huge departure for me, she said. I wanted to be on the ground, not on the base. It was 2009, and it didn't take her long to get outside the wire. Within weeks, she was filling in for a medic at a forward operating base. Between missions, she had told herself she needed to start feeling things more, having emotions. And she did, more than she'd counted on. She became overly invested in her patients, and when asked to stay on at the FOB after five weeks, she declined. I had reached my limit. It was too hard emotionally to see more, she said. Her new role demanded that she be aware of everything that was happening, everywhere. She read volumes of after-action reports and medical records. You know everything, she said. You have the big picture, and the big picture is not beautiful. You come to realize it's a shitty place here. On July 6, 2009, a CH-146 Griffin helicopter crashed, killing three soldiers, a Brit and two Canadians, Master Corporal Patrice O'Day, 38, and Corporal Martin Jouanet, 25. The pilot's visibility had been impaired by a dust ball created by its own blades. They flew into a defensive berm at the edge of the base. Dust ball training was mandatory but a subsequent report on the crash said most crews, including this one, only received the theory portion of the dust ball training. They had watched the maneuver, but never attempted it. Furthermore, the Griffin's weight limits had been modified. Its original weight restriction in Afghanistan had been between 10,300 and 10,700 pounds. Senior staff feared that that would limit operations, investigators reported, so they changed the flight manual to 11,750 to 11,900 pounds. The change had disastrous implications for the chopper in question. Its low altitude brought what was known as ground effect into play, reducing its lift. One of the chopper pilots, a woman, was crying in the clinic as she explained what had just happened. The scene was a turning point for Kuja Poirier. After the post-incident debrief, she was sad and frustrated by the futility of it all. A part of you is confident that you were there for a good reason and you really help people, she said. But it's too big to make a big change. You can change small things, but that's it. So you're just losing your faith, day after day. The lack of control over stupid decisions was an endless source of frustration. She was part of a daily patrol that headed out to a forward operating base and back. Every day, she said, day after day for two weeks, we were going along the same route at the same time, the same everything. Their interpreter had picked up chatter on the radio. Taliban were talking about hitting their patrol. He heard some bad things, she said, and he was very scared. The officer commanding had sought a change in their timing, at least, and had been told no. One morning they awoke to find that the interpreter had quit. So the morning we lost the Terp, she said, we had to find someone to take his place. We were supposed to be leaving at 8 o'clock in the morning, but when we were supposed to go, our radio broke. 
so another convoy left in our place. This convoy exploded instead of us, she said. They were lucky. There were injured people, but no dead. A lot of things there were obvious like that. But you receive orders, and you don't have a choice. After seven months overseas, she was so exhausted she had slept through a rocket attack. She returned home from her second tour in October 2009. After that, you're disconnected from normal life, she said. I wanted to go back. She went back all right, but not to Afghanistan. In January 2010, there was a magnitude 7 earthquake in Haiti, killing an estimated 160,000 people. Just three months after returning from a traumatic tour at war, Kujapore volunteered to go to a natural disaster. I was not happy in Quebec, she said, describing how she felt like a fish out of water back in Canada. You were just waiting to have your life back. You were just waiting to be normal, as you were before the first time. She had changed dramatically, however, and she was only just beginning to process it. Friends would invite her to go out to a movie or participate in activities, but she was not interested. Sometimes you just say no, she said. Sometimes you are trying because you need to make an effort if you want to live like the others. In addition, you have to pay bills, but you do not care about that. It's not important. When I first came back, I slept on the floor for two weeks because my bed was too soft. She took one of the first flights into Haiti and the last flight out, four and a half months later. She had just had her 27th birthday. I didn't want to go back home, she said. I didn't have any kids, no husband, nothing. She had seen many amputations in Haiti, but they were not the result of violence. That made a difference. The work was rewarding, and the people were grateful, despite their dire circumstances. Life back in Canada, on the other hand, was worse than ever. I was totally disconnected, she said, emotionally and physically. Now a sergeant, she volunteered to return to Afghanistan in 2011. Before she started training, however, she met her future husband, Nicholas Bergerat, a forces weapons technician who left the military in March 2018. I thought it would be a good reason to stay here and start a normal life, she said. She was offered the chance to reconsider her decision to deploy, and she did. I was not doing very well, she said, but I was trying to look as normal as possible. The hypervigilance, the anxiety, fatigue, and nightmares all persisted. She had seen patients with post-traumatic stress disorder and thought, it's okay for them, but not for me, so I refused to have that problem. Her post-mission mental health questionnaire indicated she was in a depression. She was recalled to undergo an assessment by two psychologists. She fooled them both. I convinced them that I was okay, and I convinced myself, too. By 2017, however, her husband told her she needed help. They were at CFB Borden at the time. It had been more than 10 years since her first deployment, and her condition had deteriorated by the year. She went for a consultation and was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. I'd waited 10 years, she said. She left the military in September. 2017. By the second mission, they were making a lot of efforts to support us mentally, she said, but they cannot knock on your house door, take you by the hand, and bring you to the clinic. If you don't ask for help, nobody will come. If you can't do the job, you're just a bad soldier, she said. Nobody will ask you why. I saw that, and I did that, too. You don't ask, you judge. Now Kuja Poirier is a mother of two, 
and a real estate agent in Gatineau, Quebec. She is much better, but still battles the cycles of her disorder. I'm starting to accept that, she said. It's hard. You have been listening to Frontlines. I'm Stephen J. Thorne. For this and other stories, visit legionmagazine.com frontlines. For more military history, subscribe to Legion Magazine at legionmagazine.com.